Help Jews in Poverty at HelpJewsNow.org. Your $25 gift today will help provide a life-saving food box to Jews in need. Be a blessing right now. Visit HelpJewsNow.org. That's HelpJewsNow.org. Help Jews in Poverty at HelpJewsNow.org. Your $25 gift today will help provide a life-saving food box to Jews in need. Be a blessing right now. Visit HelpJewsNow.org. That's HelpJewsNow.org. All right, guys. Welcome to a quick version of Troubled Minds Radio. We do this show live four times a week. And if you like this type of conversation, come join the podcast. We record these shows live and talk about all the crazy stuff, aliens, conspiracy, the paranormal. We discuss propaganda, the 24-hour news cycle. We talk about the government and many, many more things. Consciousness, and uh, what it means to be you in a post-truth world. So come join the podcast and come say hi, and we'd love to have you be a part of this. Now, let's cut straight to the chase. The reason you're here is because you want to know about the top five UFO incidents, in my opinion. So let's start with number five and work our way up. We're going to start with this one known as the Gorman UFO dogfight. Now, this is interesting because, well, actually for a number of reasons, we have multiple witnesses. We have a trained aviator that spent time in World War II as a combat pilot. We have this, oddly enough, being written off as a weather balloon. Spoiler alerts, right? But this is the horrible part about some of these incidents that we talk about is they've been debunked or written off as something else that they may or may not be. So anyway, let's begin here. The Gorman UFO dogfight was a widely publicized UFO incident, which took place on October 1st, 1948, in the skies over Fargo, North Dakota, in the United States, of course. The USAF, or the United States Air Force, Captain Edward J. Ruppelt wrote in his best-selling and influential book, the report on unidentified flying objects that this particular dogfight was one of three classic UFO incidents in 1948 that proved to Air Force intelligence specialists that UFOs were indeed real. Now, notably, let's look at this as we begin, that it wasn't just spotted by one particular pilot, which we'll get to in just a moment. There was actually a football game happening. And in the football game where the individual in question here, the pilot, flew over, they had an entire group of witnesses that also saw this particular object. And there was a newspaper clipping, and the headline, oddly enough, read this. Aerial display likely in Bison-Augustana game tonight. But what they meant by aerial display was, of course, a passing game and not a running game, if anybody's familiar with American football out there. But that part really doesn't matter other than there seemed to be a bizarre coincidence with the newspaper headline from that day and exactly what went down in the sky as our hero here, the pilot that encountered the UFO, actually ran into. So let's begin. He actually was flying what is known as a P-51 Mustang, all right? So he'd been on a cross-country flight with his squadron of the National Guard, 
and upon return to Hector Airport in Fargo, he elected to log some night flying time, so he remained airborne after the other planes had landed. He circled his P-51 over the lighted football stadium and around the city and was preparing to land about 9 p.m. Now, notably, again, this football stadium between the individuals there in the newspaper article, as you saw, the Bison-Augustana game, many witnesses on the ground saw what happened in the sky just above the football stadium here. So as he began flying his P-51 over this particular football game, this is when he noticed some strange things happening in the sky. This individual, his name was Gorman, of course, and a 25-year-old former fighter pilot, which served as a second lieutenant at the North Dakota Air National Guard. It was this role that placed him in control of this P-51 Mustang on October 1st, 1948. When the other pilots landed at Fargo's Hector Airport, on that fateful evening, Gorman stayed in the air. Having circled his P-51 over a lighted football stadium, he was preparing to land at 9 p.m. and advised the control tower that the only plane in the vicinity was a Piper Cub. Now, a Piper Cub plane looks like this, as you can see on the stream if you're watching on the video. And he visibly saw this, as well as was notified by radar data and the tower as he contacted them to try and make a safe landing. So he was able to make out the actual wing structure and spot the actual Piper Cub airplane that was just below him. And he also noted something else in the sky that didn't have an obvious flight structure, meaning wings or any sort of a propulsion or what appeared to be a propeller or anything of the sort. It was a glowing orb, as you might expect. But that's what the UFOs of the old days really kind of looked like, didn't they? So in any case, he decided to take a closer look at the unidentified object. He radioed in to the control tower to ask if there were any other airplanes in the vicinity, and they replied in the negative, that the only thing on radar was himself and his P-51, and the Piper Cub, which he had visibly noticed about 500 feet below him. Now, as he tried to get a closer look to determine what this actual unidentified flying object was, this thing started behaving erratically, all right? Now, he's, again, a trained combat pilot, and he's moving in to take a closer look at what has basically been deemed an unidentified flying object that did not respond to radar, and he's visually seeing this and moving in, okay? So he said this, quote, I am convinced that there was definite thought behind its maneuvers. Gorman said in a sworn statement to his commander. He continued, I am further convinced that the object was governed by the laws of inertia because its acceleration was rapid, but not immediate. And although it was able to turn fairly tight at considerable speed, it still followed a natural curve. Gorman reported blacking out temporarily due to the excessive speed he reached in attempting to turn with the object. Quote, I am in fairly good physical condition, and I do not believe that there are many, if any, pilots who could withstand the turn and speed affected by the object and remain conscious, he wrote. The object was not only able to outturn 
and outspeed my aircraft, but was able to attain a far steeper climb and was able to maintain a constant rate of climb far in excess of my aircraft. All right, now that's the crazy part here, right? So he's, again, a trained aviator, actually fought in World War II as a fighter pilot. So seeing other airplanes in the sky is nothing new to this man. He's seen dozens, hundreds of them probably. And so in this particular instance, he noted one obvious plane verified by radar when he called in. But then the other, which happened to be an orb, he moved in to get a closer look. Now, he described it as this. It was about six to eight inches in diameter, clear white and completely without fuzz at the edges. It was blinking on and off. As I approached, however, the light suddenly became steady and pulled into a sharp left bank. I thought it was making a pass at the tower. This is when it gets crazy. So it starts maneuvering, trying to evade him or basically turning this into what we would, you could describe as nothing other than a dogfight with a UFO. So he said this, when the object was coming head on, I held my plane pointed right at it. The object came so close that I involuntarily ducked my head because I thought a crash was inevitable. But the object zoomed over my head. Now, after the encounter, a shocked Gorman had difficulty landing his plane because he was so shaken up. Later, he told the Fargo Forum that the event was the weirdest experience I've had in my life. The object made no sound and left no exhaust trail or odor. Later, the pilot drew a diagram of what he experienced, which is now public after the Air Force declassified it. This is incredibly strange because not only do you have Gorman as the witness, his co-pilot signed off as seeing everything that he described. We have this other airplane that also was able to radio into the tower and look off to their west and see this same object that Gorman encountered, the UFO. And we have dozens or even hundreds of witnesses down below at the football game. So this is one of those encounters that can't easily be explained away. However, as Project Blue Book took a look into this, which was actually Project Grudge and Project Sign prior to becoming Project Blue Book, which is the infamous UFO investigation of the late 40s to late 60s, they deemed this as a case of this fighter pilot seeing a weather balloon. Now, he stated that he accelerated to 400 miles per hour the top speed of the P-51 to try and catch this, quote, weather balloon, which was described after the incident, and he could not do that. As he did land and finally made it back home safely, they launched an investigation. They took readings of his airplane and determined that he had been in contact with some sort of radiation, which, of course, thickened the plot as it were, because then there were some theories that maybe the airplane itself was using a nuclear power or something that emitted radiation. And so that was all written off due to his altitude. And of course, they thought that this experienced fighter pilot chased a weather balloon and couldn't catch it and then became disoriented and ended up chasing in the night sky what actually became Saturn. And that's the official story. Now, as always, when we talk about these things on Troubled Minds in this podcast, you have to make up your own mind. 
clearly the official story is never going to be the full truth because they do a good job of redacting things, spinning information, and straight up covering up UFO incidents like this. So you tell me, what do you believe? And if you enjoy this conversation, stick around for number four on the list of most amazing, most incredible top five UFO encounters. Help Jews in poverty at helpjewsnow.org. Your $25 gift today will help provide a life-saving food box to Jews in need. Be a blessing right now. Visit helpjewsnow.org. That's helpjewsnow.org. All right, let's continue with number four of our most incredible UFO encounters. Now, this particular encounter is known as the Mantell UFO Incident. And it happened on January 7th, 1948. And then 25-year-old Captain Thomas F. Mantell was a Kentucky Air National Guard pilot who ended up chasing this particular UFO in question that day. And unfortunately, as a spoiler alert here, ended up dying as a result of chasing this UFO. Now, he was in pursuit, of course, and the event was one of the most highly publicized UFO incidents in the late 1940s. Of course, don't forget Roswell, the fabled Roswell crash was in 1947. So this was merely a year later, approximately. Later investigation by the United States Air Force, by the USAF Project Blue Book investigation, indicated that Mantell may have died chasing a skyhook balloon, which in 1948 was a top secret project that he would not have known about. And this is what a skyhook balloon looks like if you guys are watching the video version of this. Now, oddly enough, we have two similar cases to begin this top five most amazing UFO incidents. The problem here is we're talking about professional aviators that have spent combat time mistaking simple balloons for UFOs, otherworldly objects, as it were. So it is a notable thing that if you have a professional aviator that has to live and die by identifying which craft may be in the air, this in particular is more than a little bit tragic, let's say. So here we go. As this happened for about an hour and 25 minutes, dozens of people, including Colonel Hicks, which was on the ground at the Godman Army Airfield at Fort Knox, Kentucky, were witnessing the UFO as it seemed to hang motionless in the southwestern sky. In the towns of southern Kentucky, people watched the UFO, some claiming it drifted silently and slowly to the south. Others thought it hovered for a few minutes and then resumed its slow flight. The witnesses were clearly describing something that was moving very slow. At 2.45 p.m., the situation suddenly changed. A flight of P-51 Mustang fighters, which actually had just been named to the F-51, flew over Godman Army Airfield. With the UFO still visible, the flight leader, Captain Thomas Mantell, was asked if he would investigate. Mantell replied that he was merely ferrying the aircraft, but that he would attempt an intercept. He began a spiraling climbing turn to 220 degrees and 15,000 feet. As he reached 15,000 feet, Mantell radioed the tower. Records of that transmission are in dispute. Mantell did say that the object was, quote, above me and appears to be moving about half my speed. 
Later, he would report that it was, quote, metallic, and it is tremendous in size. With the UFO still above him, he reported he would continue to climb. The records are also confusing about the altitudes that various pilots reached. Mantell and two of his wingmen reached 15,000 feet. Some of the documentation suggests that all three aircraft reached 22,000 feet, where the two wingmen who had stayed with him, Lieutenant A.W. Clements and Lieutenant B.A. Hammond, turned back. The oxygen equipment in one of the fighters had failed, and military regulations required that oxygen be used above 14,000 feet. Hammond radioed that they were abandoning the intercept, but Mantell, who had no oxygen equipment on his aircraft, continued to climb. He did not acknowledge the message from Hammond. For 30 minutes, as the flight chased the huge object, each of the wingmen broke off the intercept. Now, at 3.10 p.m., which is more than 20 minutes later, Mantell was the only pilot left chasing the object, and he was alone at approximately 23,000 feet in the air. According to the documentation, he either told his wingman that he was going to climb to 20,000 feet, and if he could get no closer or observe anything else, he would break off the intercept. Others suggested that he said he was going to 25,000 feet for 10 minutes. The last that anyone saw of him, he was climbing toward the UFO, but made no more radio calls to either his wingman or the control tower at Godman. By 3.15, everyone had lost both radio and visual contact with him. Now, this is exactly what we're talking about, right? So was Thomas Mantell so mistaken and caught up describing this particular UFO as a gigantic object, something metallic, or is this entirely different? So if you go by the official story, which is what I just described to you there, they're saying it's some sort of weather balloon, some sort of skyhook weather balloon, which was classified at the time, and Mantell would have never known it could have been exactly that. We have witnesses on the ground describing this as moving very slowly. We have his actual wingmen that chase this thing with him. It seems odd to me that once again, we have these seasoned aviators, these people that are professional pilots that are trained observers misstating exactly what happened here regarding whether it was 20,000 feet, 25,000 feet, whether man tells that he was going to continue pursuing or not. The other odd part is, of course, he ended up crashing. It's unfortunate, but he did send some last messages here. So he said this. So at 3.10 p.m., Mantell was the only fighter left chasing the object, which we described at approximately, say, 23,000 feet. He was still climbing toward the UFO when he made no more radio calls to either his wingman or the control tower. And, of course, at 3.15, everyone lost radio and visual contact. Now, the radio conversation between control and Godman is, is essentially as follows. Colonel Hicks says this, object traveling at 180 miles per hour, half my speed. Lieutenant Orner's account said this, high and traveling about half my speed at 12 o'clock position. And then later, closing in to take a good look. No further word heard by Orner. Later, we have the account from Quentin Blackbell, Sergeant Quentin Blackbell, says object traveling at 180 miles per hour directly above and ahead, now moving at about half my speed. So we're talking about what is described as a weather balloon, right? As this skyhook balloon traveling at 180 miles per hour and not able to be caught by these particular aircraft. So once again, you tell me, 
if this is probably one of those strange ones where I guess you'd have to be there. I guess you'd have to have some flight experience. And that definitely helps when you're describing things like this. But tragically, of course, Mantell ended up actually crashing. Thomas Mantell crashed and lost his life that day. It seems to me that when you talk about things like this and you have, I guess that was, this would be a misunderstanding, would be the official story, it would be a training exercise or uh, an actual unidentified object that the government knew what it might be. But if that was the case, you have to consider why would they send him to go intercept this thing and take a look to see what it was? There's some gigantic, obvious plot holes here that nobody really accounts for. That's unfortunately part of the entire UFO dilemma and drama as all of this unfolds. So we have government pilots, or at least pilots that are now out of the military with experience flying whatever they're flying, right? In this case, it's the P-51, the F-51, as the name was changed. Then... We have them chasing what appears to be a balloon. Different accounts, some saying it's moving slowly. The pilot's actually saying that the object is moving quickly. Mantell describing this as a large metallic object. There's a lot of strangeness here that doesn't seem to add up. Unfortunately, he crashes, as we described in the beginning here. So at, at 5 p.m., which is about, let's say, a little after three hours after this entire contact ensued with this UFO, they found the remains of the P-51 on a farm near Franklin, Kentucky. For over an estimate of six-tenths of a mile from the center point of the wreckage, pieces of the aircraft landed on the ground. The parts scattered to the north and south. Now, the report says Thomas Mantell's body was found in the broken cockpit, which had stopped at 3.18 p.m. An accident investigation began immediately, as by regulation. Since the canopy lock was in place after the crash, they assumed that Captain Mantell made no attempt to abandon the aircraft. The consensus is that Captain Mantell lost consciousness at approximately 25,000 feet. Within 48 hours, Air Force investigators collected statements from the military witnesses who had been in Godman Tower on January 7th. If the Air Force knew this particular balloon was in the area, why would they send uh, this guy to intercept, right, with his wingmen? Again, so many plot holes here that you got to smack yourself in the forehead and say, okay, well, is this a cover-up? These are the things we talk about. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this was a, an actual alien spacecraft. I don't know what this was. I, I wasn't alive then. Neither were you probably. But the, the point here is that if we continue down this road of just accepting every government explanation for all of these UFOs, then who are the fools? Us or the government for giving us sort of ridiculous explanations for some of these things? So, of course, they've described this as Venus, right? Uh, based on the object direction and time of day, Air Force National Guard investigators affirmed that the planet Venus would be in that sky position. According to the astronomical charts, available Venus would be seen in the daylight sky in the approximate location of the UFO. So now we're expected to believe that, again, seasoned aviators just saw Venus in the sky and they all reacted and chased this thing like they'd never seen a planet or a star in the sky, right? Doesn't that seem ridiculous to you? Of course, the other would be the weather balloon and what actually happened with this skyhook weather balloon. Like I said, why would you need a government investigation to question witnesses and have boots on the ground and Project Blue Book and all the rest of this if they simply knew it was what was known as a skyhook weather balloon? Now, like I said, 
I don't know the answers here, but I think these types of cases deserve maybe a second look, maybe a third look, maybe all of our eyes on these things and all of our minds in these particular areas, because you never know. Maybe both of these cases thus far have been a, a misunderstanding. Maybe not at all. Maybe exactly as described and why they've become infamous in ufology is that they may be something, let's say, out of this world. If you love this stuff, come join the podcast. Come uh, follow us and hang out. It's Troubled Minds Radio, and let's move on to number three of most exciting, crazy, ridiculous UFO encounters. Let's go. Help Jews in Poverty at HelpJewsNow.org. Your $25 gift today will help provide a life-saving food box to Jews in need. Be a blessing right now. Visit HelpJewsNow.org. That's HelpJewsNow.org. All right. Number three on our list is Shag Harbor. Now, the Shag Harbor UFO incident has been run through the ringer in ufology and some of those specials you've seen on the History Channel or on Discovery or whatever it is you watch out there. Some cases have described this as simply something mundane, a meteorite or things like this, right? If you watch Giorgio Tsoukalos and guys like that on Ancient Aliens, they've described this as a actual UFO crash. Not only that, a military response from the Canadian government, but also a Russian submarine lurking off the coast of Nova Scotia back in October 1967. The Ancient Aliens account of describing not just a crash landing of a UFO with many witnesses, a second UFO possibly coming down into the water to maybe repair this thing. And like I said, the accounts are really all over the place, depending on who you ask. Like everything that happens with UFO accounts, right? If you ask a skeptic, they're going to say, well, clearly it was a meteorite or it's a weather balloon or the things we talked about. It's Venus or whatever in the night sky. Now that's the Project Blue Book type things that they wrote off. Remember, weather balloons, swamp gas, Venus in the sky, meteorites, those types of things. And again, not saying that all of that is impossible, but it does seem a little bit strange to me that some of these most famous cases or infamous cases are written off as, well, uh, simply mundane things that even trained observers are confused by. This particular incident happened in October 4th, 1967, and it kind of just started like this. A object is flying in the night sky off of the coast of Nova Scotia, and that's, that would be the Atlantic Ocean out there, and it, it ended up crashing. So witnesses were driving down this road, this highway in Nova Scotia. They witnessed this light, the yellow object. So here we go. Daryl Dory, his sister Annette, and his mother were sitting on their front porch in Mahoney Bay when they noticed a large object maneuvering above the southwestern sky. The next day, Daryl wrote a letter to RCAF Greenwood Base Commander asking what was flying over the water that evening as he had never seen anything like it. This is dozens of witnesses that actually saw this thing happen. The way it went down was like this. So at about 11 p.m., a UFO some 60 feet in diameter was seen just hovering over the waterway in a tiny fishing village of Shag Harbor in Nova Scotia, which displayed four bright lights that flashed in sequence, tilted to a 45-degree angle, and descended rapidly towards the water's surface. 
Upon impact, there was a bright flash and an explosive roar. Concerned witnesses began calling the nearby Barrington Passage RCMP detachment. That would be the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, if anybody doesn't know what the RCMP is. Also, lol. None of those witnesses mentioned anything about a UFO. Most believed that a large aircraft had ditched into the harbor and there might be survivors. Uh, So eventually, three of these Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers arrived at the shore near the impact site. Corporal V. Werbicki and Constable Ron O'Brien, dispatched from the Barrington Passage Detachment, were approached from east of the site. Constable Ron Pond, who was on highway patrol, was heading towards Shag Harbor from a position west of the impact site, and his position allowed him to view the UFO while it was still in flight. Now, notably, Ron Pond was a highway patrol officer that was out there. He was driving, and he was able to witness this UFO as it crashed into the harbor. The u- unusual lighting configuration and flight characteristics tipped uh, Officer Pond off to the unusual nature of the object long before he heard from Corporal Werbicki, who received his information through the initial complaints to the detachment. Of course, we have people driving on the highway that also saw this. And as these officers, the RCMP and the highway patrol officer met, they found that the UFO was still floating on the water about a half mile from the shore. It was a glowing pale yellow and was leaving a trail of dense yellow form as it drifted. Neither the rescue coordinator center in Halifax nor the nearby NORAD radar facility at Bacaro, Nova Scotia had any knowledge of missing aircraft, either civilian or military. Officer Pond reported that the object had changed during its descent to the water's surface, meaning it changed shape and that it appeared to be no known object. Other local witnesses described much the same details as those of Officer Pond. Also, a Coast Guard lifeboat from nearby Clarks Harbor and several local fishing boats were summoned to investigate, but the UFO had submerged before they reached the site. The sulfurous-smelling yellow foam continued to well to the surface from the point where the UFO went down, and a 120 by 300 foot slick developed. Search efforts continued until 3 a.m. and then resumed at first light. You see what's going on here? Everybody involved was convinced that something real and unidentified had gone into the water. So now we have, again, trained observers. We have multiple witnesses. We have what appears to be some sort of yellow glowing orb crashes into the harbor and actually submerges underwater. And then on top of that, no civilian or military aircraft as part of this being an aircraft they can easily point to. So the next morning, a preliminary report was sent to Canadian Forces Headquarters in Ottawa. After communicating with NORAD, Maritime Command was asked to conduct an underwater search ASAP for the object responsible for the concern in Shag Harbor. Seven Navy divers with the HMCS Granby searched throughout the daylight hours until sundown, October 8th in 1967. On Monday, October 9th, 1967, Maritime Command canceled the search effort claiming nil results. Outside of the local area, media attention quickly faded. Oddly enough, notably, when the government and the media complex, right, look up Operation Mockingbird if you're not aware of that, if they want a story to go away, these things tend to just go away, don't they? The Vegas shooting is another example. Check that out. It came and went. Everybody forgot about it because it couldn't be easily politicized. It was uncomfortable. There were some implications that 
It could be some other thing happening. The government just kind of swept it aside. But then just as a quick example there, notice the one that happened at the school, Stoneman Marjorie Douglas, they talked about that for six months or eight months straight on CNN. My point is, if the government wants a story to go away, it goes away. And that's exactly what happened here. The, the Shag Harbor UFO crash retrieval became case number 34 in the infamous Condon Committee report, which would serve as Project Blue Book's swan song. The case was brought to Dr. Condon's limited attention by the late Jim Lorenzen of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization and Dr. Levine, the investigator assigned to the case, allocated the grand total of two long-distance phone calls to the investigation. One call was to the watch officer at Maritime Command, and the other was a Royal Canadian Mounted Police spokesperson. And of course, well, they didn't get any information. Dr. Levine was assured that there was nothing to the case and that further investigation was futile. Thus, interest in the Shag Harbor case withered away. And like I said, the Discovery Channel, History Channel have done features on this particular crash and even made some amazing claims, like a UFO crash, and then another one came to its aid, and then they all floated out further away from the harbor itself out into the Atlantic and then flew off. That's the Giorgio Tsoukalos Ancient Aliens super tinfoil hat version. But I don't know exactly what happened. As usual, this is a tantalizing and frustrating case of what may have happened in the past, and where some describe it as a possible plane crash, others have described it as a straight-up UFO. And that's why we talk about these things. That's why we consider these things. And that's why we're going to continue doing this. So let's move on, shall we? That is Shag Harbor at number three. Help Jews in poverty at helpjewsnow.org. Your $25 gift today will help provide a life-saving food box to Jews in need. Be a blessing right now. Visit helpjewsnow.org. That's helpjewsnow.org. Now, let's move to our second craziest UFO encounter ever. Let's do it. Number two on our list of most amazing, outrageous, noteworthy UFO encounters is known as the Battle of Los Angeles. Now, the Battle of Los Angeles, also known as the Great Los Angeles Air Raid, is the name given by contemporary sources to a rumored attack on the continental United States by Imperial Japan and the subsequent anti-aircraft artillery barrage, which took place from late February 24th to early February 25th in 1942 over Los Angeles, California. The incident occurred less than three months after the U.S. entered World War II in response to the Imperial Japanese Navy's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, and one day after the bombardment of Elwood near Santa Barbara on the 23rd of February. Now, the bombardment there was actually by a Japanese submarine just off the California coast, and that did happen. That was a real thing, which unfortunately is how this is described away as being some sort of military operation and jitters were super high because the war had just began. You have this horrific event that happened at Pearl Harbor with the Japanese sneak attack and lots and lots of people dead, huge casualties, and the major damage to the Pacific Fleet. I want to point out that February 25th, 1942, just two hours up the road, this particular area was the subject of a Japanese raid. The Japanese sub prowling the waters off the California coast fired several shells at targets in the area, causing minimal damage but initiating the invasion scare that followed. So you see, right, we have World War II jitters, we have 
about an actual attack from a Japanese submarine. And then we have what became known as the Battle of Los Angeles. The evening of February 24th, 1942, when naval intelligence instructed units on the California coast to steel themselves for a potential Japanese attack, all remained calm for the next few hours. But shortly after 2 a.m. on February 25th, military radar picked up what appeared to be an enemy contact some 120 miles west of Los Angeles. Air raid sirens sounded and a citywide blackout was put into effect. Within minutes, troops had manned anti-aircraft guns and began sweeping the skies with searchlights. It was just after 3 a.m. when the shooting started. Following reports of an unidentified object in the skies, troops in Santa Monica unleashed a barrage of anti-aircraft and 50 caliber machine gun. Before long, many of the city's other coastal defense weapons had joined in. Quote, powerful searchlights from countless stations stabbed the sky with brilliant probing fingers, the Los Angeles Times wrote, while anti-aircraft batteries dotted the heavens with beautiful, if sinister, orange bursts of shrapnel. This is referring to the infamous photo of the Battle of Los Angeles, which many of you have seen this, where there appears to be some object in the sky. Not only that, there are spotlights, searchlights, all aimed at this thing, clearly denoting something is up there, all right? They're all pointing at the same spot. You can see what appears to be, who knows? It's definitely something that's illuminated because all the lights are clearly on this thing. And what it is, is still a mystery, as they say. As we know in UFO circles and as in the conspiracy circles, as we talk about on this show, is that if you really look at this and knowing this is a real photograph, and it is, that there's something there. And literally, very much like we've described in some of the other UFO cases in this episode, how on earth are we supposed to believe that this could have been a weather balloon or Venus in the night sky? I mean, sure, fine. Everybody was on edge. Nerves are a thing. People are human. All of that, right? People make mistakes. But when you start looking at some of the evidence here of what actually happened and them firing 50 caliber anti-aircraft shells at this thing in the night sky, I'm not so sure. So here we go. Chaos reigned over the next several minutes. It appeared that Los Angeles was under attack. Yet many of those who looked skyward saw nothing but smoke and the glare of fire. Quote, imagination could have easily disclosed many shapes in the sky in the midst of that weird symphony of noise and color. Coastal Artillery Corps Colonel John G. Murphy later wrote, but cold detachment disclosed no planes of any type in the sky, friendly or enemy. So you tell me, if nobody saw any airplanes, what the hell were they shooting at? That's my question here, right? And as usual, what do you think this got explained as? This is a balloon, right? This is a balloon. Yeah, uh, crazy stuff. So here we go. For others, however, the threat appeared to be very real. Reports poured in from across the city describing Japanese aircraft flying in formation, bombs falling, and enemy paratroopers. There was even a claim of a Japanese plane crash landing in the streets of Hollywood, which, by the way, isn't so incredibly far-fetched because if you look it up, a Japanese Zero fighter plane actually did crash on the Oregon coast during World War II, or just thereafter. So it's not that far out of the bounds of reason, okay? Just so you know. Here's a quote. 
I could barely see the planes, but they were up there all right, a coastal artilleryman named Charles Patrick later wrote in a letter. He continued, I could see six planes and shells were bursting all around them. Naturally, all of us fellows were anxious to get our two cents worth in, and when the command came, everybody cheered like a son of a gun. They thought they shot these uh, Japanese planes out of the sky. Uh, So the barrage continued for over an hour. By the time a final all-clear order was given later that morning, Los Angeles' artillery batteries had pumped over 1,400 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition into the sky. It was only in the light of day that the American military units made a puzzling discovery. There appeared to have been no enemy attack. Quote, Although reports were conflicting and every effort is being made to ascertain the facts, It is clear that no bombs were dropped and no planes were shot down, read a statement from the Army's Western Defense Command. Ironically, the only damage during the battle had come from friendly fire. Anti-aircraft shrapnel rained down across the city, shattering windows and ripping through buildings. One dud careened into a Long Beach golf course and several residents had their homes partially destroyed by three-inch artillery shells. While there were no serious injuries from the shootout, it was reported that at least five people had died as a result of heart failure and car accidents that occurred during the extended blackout. In a preview of the hysteria that would soon accompany the Japanese internment, authorities also arrested some 20 Japanese Americans for allegedly trying to signal the non-existent aircraft. This seems crazy. This seems absolutely nutters that we would have 50 caliber shells firing out into what? Into what? Again, here's an actual photograph that was taken of the Battle of Los Angeles. If you guys are watching this on video, and this is horrific, right? So this actual photograph was taken by the LA Times, and again, February 24th, 1942, and this is real. This is a real photograph. So you tell me, right? What does that look like? Clearly, there's something there in these spotlights. So as usual, what they said was that it was a weather balloon. And of course, it was World War II jitters about to happen and all the rest of this, right? And then, of course, a false alarm attack. Now, what witnesses have said that this thing actually just floated away. So even though we had spotlights like crazy on this, we had eyeballs all over the entire Western seaboard staring at this thing, and we had 50 caliber guns firing to bring it down, nothing came down, again, from the official reports. There were no aircraft, and this thing eventually just floated away and it ended up disappearing. So I think this is one of those notable instances where it's easy to read the official report and say, oh, well, you know, very much like they said in, in the 60s with the Cold War, Cold War jitters, right? Is this just another case of mistaken identity, even though we have this photograph, this literal photograph from the Los Angeles Times of searchlights all pointing at this particular object in the sky and 50 caliber guns firing directly at this thing and nothing no damage no anything the thing again floated out of sight and disappeared so you tell me i don't know what is going on here other than this is worthy of a conversation and worthy of us continuing to think about this and talk about this so thanks for hanging with me thus far we're going to get to the top ufo crazy encounter in my opinion coming up next 
It's finally time to start firing up the grill. From city to shore, Acme is everything you need to prep for this summer season. Download the Acme app, the shop for this season's essentials, any way you want. Open the Acme app, clip your deals, then order your items online. An experienced Acme associate will carefully select your groceries, bag your order, and bring it right to your car or deliver right to your door. Download the app or visit acmemarkets.com for program details. All right, now let's get to number one on the list. There are a lot of incredible UFO encounters and sightings and incidents that could be combed through and determined as maybe the top incident. But in my opinion, this one really takes the cake, or let's say takes the taco, because, well, tacos are better than cake in my opinion, but I digress. So there's an incident back in 1977 known as Operation Saucer. Of course, since it was in Brazil, which is where this happened, it was named Operation Prato, P-R-A-T-O. I don't speak Portuguese, so you'll have to forgive my pronunciation here. But craziness ensued. So we've seen to this point people losing their lives, maybe in a dogfight, a fighter pilot, maybe losing out to a UFO. In this instance now, we have some really insane stuff that is just off the charts. This was an investigation carried out between 1977 and 1978 by the Brazilian Air Force following alleged UFO sightings in the city of Colares. The investigation was closed after finding no unusual phenomena. We've heard that before, haven't we? In this case, we've got over 400 witnesses, and these incidents continued happening after several months. It wasn't just one time these UFOs showed up. Not only did they show up and people saw lights in the sky. Now, this is the horrifying part. They were attacked by these UFOs. People actually went to hospitals with radiation burns from these UFOs. This is the official report. So in 1977, numerous UFOs were reported in the Brazilian city of Colares. Local residents claimed that scars on their bodies were caused by the lights in the sky and named the lights Chupa Chupa. Of course, literally translating to sucker sucker, like the Chupa Cabra is the goat sucker. This is Chupa Chupa, the sucker sucker. The craziest part is the reason they called it that is because they believed these UFOs were attacking them with these lasers, basically and sucking blood from them through these laser beams. So believing it would keep the lights away, residents of Colaris organized night vigils, lit fires, and ignited fireworks. The mayor, Jose Ildone, requested help from the Air Force. So we have over 400 witnesses over not just days, weeks, now months, being attacked from literally lights in the sky and describing them as lasers people going to hospitals with radiation burns, entire areas doing night vigils to try and spot these things before they're attacked out of nowhere, and the mayor of the town, Colares, contacting the Brazilian Air Force for help. This is, again, all documented. All these things I talked about on this particular podcast today, it's all documented. Go look this stuff up. I'm not making these things up. These are a lot of the details. And in many cases, they just describe them as mundane things, right? Again, Venus, weather balloons, what, swamp gas? I mean, okay, come on. So how, how do you explain this one away? Over 400 witnesses, night vigils, the mayor actually requesting help from the 
Brazilian Air Force. And what they ended up doing is clearing the women and children out of the area to keep them safe as these attacks continued, because they did continue. So this investigation, again, was into a terrifying series of reported incidents in 1977, where residents of the Brazilian city of Colares claimed that they not only witnessed these flying saucers, like I stated, but they were also being attacked by these flying saucers. So bright objects of differing sizes, shapes, and colors were said to have been flying at low altitudes, just a few meters above the tops of trees. And this is the crazy part firing light beams at people on the ground below. What, lasers? We're talking 1977. Are militaries out there shooting lasers at people in 1977? I highly doubt that. This continues. Several witnesses claim to have seen beings, actual entities, piloting the crafts, describing them as no more than three to four feet tall. What separates these sightings from the usual glimpses of UFOs in the skies are the numerous and recurring injuries that the people suffered. This is nutters. The beams gave off intense radiation burns that caused puncture marks and lesions, with some reporting to local media at the time that it felt like a heavy weight pushed against their chest. A report into the claims made by the victims stated, quote, the beam was about seven or eight centimeters in diameter and white in color. And the quote continues, it never hunted for them, but hit them suddenly. When they tried to scream, no sound would come out, but their eyes remained open. The beam felt hot, almost as hot as a cigarette burn. You see what's going on here? What in the world is this, right? Describing the injuries, Dr. Carvalho, who worked in a healthcare unit in the area during the 70s, wrote, all of them had suffered lesions to the face or the thoracic area. So the lesions, he continues, looking like radiation injuries, began with intense reddening of the skin in the affected area. Later, the hair would fall out and the skin would turn black. There was no pain, only a slight warmth. One also noticed small puncture marks in the skin. The victims were men and women of varying ages without any pattern. The saucers were quickly dubbed, as I described, Chupa Chupa because of those puncture marks. People believed they were actually having their blood taken from these UFOs with these white laser beams of course, notice they didn't describe them as lasers because back in 1977, lasers didn't exist. Well, supposedly, right? Again, this is the, the craziest UFO case to me because not only do we have hundreds of witnesses, we have nighttime vigils to keep these UFOs away. We have people going to actual clinics and hospitals being treated for radiation burns and these actual puncture wounds. How do you explain this away? With reports of more sightings and more incidents of people being injured or losing blood, panic soon started to set in and women and children left the area while local men stayed to look after their homes and possessions. This is crazy, right? This is insane. And this is an actual UFO case. Look it up. I'm not making it up. Just search Operation Saucer. So this continues. With no reasonable explanation offered as to what exactly was behind the so-called attacks from UFOs, the Brazilian Air Force was tasked with finding out what was going on. A 2,000-page military report was soon compiled featuring 500 photographs and 16 hours of film that the Brazilian Air Force reportedly witnessed with their own eyes. 
Ufologist Daniel Geese claimed in his book that several military personnel suffered nervous breakdowns, while others went completely insane during the course of the investigation. Are we talking huge exaggerations? Are we talking about people trying to get UFO clicks to their websites? This is 1977, guys. There was no internet. The only way this gets picked up is by the media. As you know, this was not what is known as an international incident. Strange, right? You would figure if over months, UFOs were attacking a population and the Air Force and the mayor had to get involved and try and ask for help and launch an investigation, this would have made international news. The operation never explicitly stated that UFOs or aliens were the official cause of the sightings and injuries. However, high-ranking officials from the Brazilian Air Force reportedly told a group of ufologists in 2004 that they had discreetly been studying the existence of UFOs since the mid-1950s. Yeah, I don't know. You tell me. I've talked about five separate cases here, and it sure seems like the most obvious explanation is never the explanation that is used. Notably, in this one, they couldn't say weather balloons. They couldn't say swamp gas. They couldn't say Venus or meteorites. They couldn't say any of those things because people were actually being attacked with lasers from UFOs. But if every single one of these cases is fake, then what the hell's going on here? Every UFO case is either misidentification or a government psyop then, right? Or some sort of government technology in a gain-of-function capacity. I don't know. I, I am not that answer guy, and that's what we do on this show. We go into some of these things and discuss what happened and why, and not just historically. There's all kinds of crazy things that happen in the news cycles today. That's what we do. That's what Troubled Minds is all about because there are no easy answers. If you ask one person, you'll get one opinion. But if you ask 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 people, it becomes complicated because you start to get different answers, different theories, different opinions on the exact same thing. So again, if you love this, join the podcast. Get your ass in here and let's talk about these things. Most importantly, let's think about these things. Is this real? Are there actual extraterrestrials doing their thing? Or is this some sort of government disinformation campaign? Or is it somewhere in between? That's why the conversation is so rich, because you can't just say, well, UFOs. And you can't just say, well, swamp gas. So thanks again for hanging out. I know it's been a long show. And uh, if you're looking forward to more of this type of thing, come join us. We stream live four nights a week. We do a couple of news shows as well on Twitch on Monday and Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific. The regular Troubled Mind show airs live, and we go Monday through Thursday at 7 p.m. Pacific. And you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, DLive, or Periscope. And of course, all this stuff goes to the podcast feed. So if you don't want to miss anything, just follow the podcast. It's probably the most convenient way to listen to this. So thanks for sticking with us. Again, I'm Michael Strange. This is Troubled Minds. We'll see you soon. It's finally time to start firing up the grill. From city to shore, Acme is everything you need to prep for this summer season. Download the Acme app, the shop for this season's essentials, any way you want. Open the Acme app, clip your deals, then order your items online. An experienced Acme associate will carefully select your groceries, bag your order, and bring it right to your car or deliver right to your door. Download the app or visit acmemarkets.com for program details. 
It's finally time to start firing up the grill. From city to shore, Acme is everything you need to prep for this summer season. Download the Acme app, the shop for this season's essentials, any way you want. Open the Acme app, clip your deals, then order your items online. An experienced Acme associate will carefully select your groceries, bag your order, and bring it right to your car or deliver right to your door. Download the app or visit acmemarkets.com for program details.